Hello again, Sex Ed with DB fam and friends alike. I am thrilled to be here again for another re-release with the wonderful Reverend Pleasure. Uh, This episode is all about sex, spirituality, and religion, and we talk about how spirituality intersects with sexuality. And if you're not familiar with Reverend Pleasure's work, you are really, really in for it today. It is an amazing episode that was a season five highlight. Um, Where are we now? We're going to be in season nine. So this was a while ago, uh, but nonetheless, it's one of our most popular episodes. So I think people are finding it and people are really interested in it. Who is Reverend Pleasure? Rev Pleasure is a movement chaplain working to create a culture of sanctity, pleasure, and wholeness for Black femmes, girls, and women. And if you like this episode, check out our episode with Dr. Jennifer Mullen, which also speaks to spirituality and healing the trauma that lives in us as a result of patriarchal and religious violence, as well as last season's episode of Curious Sex Ed on sex and religion on the same topic, which was released on the main feed in May 2023. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Uh, Things do get a little heavy at some parts of it, so definitely a content warning there. Uh, for violence and for assault. Uh, But if you are up for a really, really meaningful, wonderful conversation about sex and religion, here I am with Reverend Pleasure. Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, head to www.sexedwithdb.com and buy some of our hot new merch. Follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast. And if you want to advertise with us, shoot us an email at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. This is the last episode of season five. I truly cannot believe that we have officially produced five seasons of this awesome podcast with over 70 episodes. Thank you times a million to our incredible supporters, followers, and listeners. You are the heart of this podcast, and we love you. Today is a special episode where I discuss the intersections of sexuality, spirituality, and religion with Reverend Pleasure. Rev Pleasure is working to create a culture of sanctity, pleasure, and wholeness for Black femmes, girls, and women. She works with individuals and communities to heal trauma as a result of patriarchal and religious violence. The modalities she specializes in are customized affirmations, guided meditations, and workshop creation to support folks in their spiritual and sacral development. Follow her on IG at PurposefullyLJ. Get ready for the last episode of the season with Rev Pleasure. Sex Ed with DB is supported by Pandia Health, the only doctor-led birth control delivery company. Most birth control is free with insurance or for $15 per pack without. Your birth control comes with free delivery and free goodies, and you can get an online doctor visit if you need it, which is perfect during COVID-19. Go to pandiahealth.com, that's P-A-N-D-I-A health.com, and use code SEXEDFREE to get a free telemedicine appointment for the first 50 people who sign up. Offer only valid in Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, and Wyoming. Ever wish you had an exact replica of your gorgeous parts? Well, now you can make one yourself, thanks to Clonawilly. 
Clonawilly and Clonapussy are DIY molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva at home into a high-quality sex toy or memento. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase at www.clonawilly.com. Follow them on Instagram at clonawillykit. Reverend Pleasure, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Um, Like I mentioned before we started recording, I have been admiring you from uh, near and from afar for quite many years uh, since we kind of overlapped at O School and we have similar paths in terms of wanting to empower folks when it comes to their pleasure and sexuality. And I have really uh, been loving your work for a while. So I'm really glad that you're here. Thank you so much. Uh, The admiration is definitely mutual. So I am excited to be here. Thank you. Incredible. Well, let's dive in. Uh, Tell folks your name, your pronouns, and how you identify, however you want to answer that question. Yeah, so uh, I guess as my people would say, my government name is Letitia James. Uh, I go by Reverend Pleasure, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I identify as a Black, queer, dyke womanist. Um, So what that means for me is that I center Black women, girls, and femmes in everything that I do first and foremost. Um, And I know at the core that particularly when black trans women are free, then we can all get free, right? Um, In terms of my identity and how I love and who I love in the world, um, I love black femmes, black women, black trans folks. Um, Those are the people that I uh, partner with, make home with, uh, make community with, Uh, so yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about you. And let's get into your sex ed growing up. What was it like? What's your kind of story, your background? If you had kind of an aha moment, if you will, during your sex ed, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, my sex ed was virtually non-existent. And then what I did have was woolly insufficient. Um, I distinctly remember in seventh grade during health class, we had to watch this video. And I think it's the same video that a lot of us had to watch. And it was so outdated. And I remember just thinking, this is, this is ridiculous. (laughs) And at this point, I had been having my menstrual cycle for almost two years. So I was like, number one, you're late. Mm-hmm. Right. For some of us. Like for those of us who started menstruating when we were fairly young, I was 10 when I started. I know that I know folks who were eight and nine when mm-hmm. they started. And so at this point I was 12, almost 13. And I'm like, okay, you're late. I've been doing this already. <laughs> um, you know, so there's that. It doesn't, it wasn't culturally uh, accurate, right? It wasn't really taking into consideration that we could be at different levels, which we know is something that happens in education across the board. Uh, But this video was very much so whitewashed. It was very much so centering the experience of what science had deemed as the, um, what do you want to call it, the normal, right, point for, for what happens in our bodies around puberty. And so 
that was the point of view of a cisgender white girl, right? Who they thought debuted around 13, 14 years old. And mm. it's like, absolutely not. <laughs> so I remember that video and just being like, okay, whatever. Uh, and then I think the next time I got something sex ed related in school was my freshman year of high school. Wow. Yeah. And then... I never got it again. I don't think. That was the end of it. With a formal setting, yeah. Um, you know, I remember at home getting mixed messages. It was very much so, you know, but growing up in a religious household, it was very much so don't do the thing. And then also culturally, though, I come from a cultural background. I'm Caribbean, um, and I come from a cultural background where sex is talked about all the time in our music like constantly. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm listening to these songs growing up and I'm like, okay, what's, there's some cognitive dissonance happening here. And I do remember the one like talk that I got from an aunt of mine after I got my first uh, menstrual cycle was, so you know you can get pregnant now, right? And I was like, I'm, I'm 10. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> just back it up, you know, just like what is even like, happening? Can we pause, flag on the play. I don't know what's happening here. And I, and I remember we were at a birthday party and she had like pulled me to the side to tell me this. It's like, do you think I'm going to get pregnant at this 10 year old birthday party? Like, like what's the moon happening? bounce will not be getting me pregnant today. Yeah, that was um, that was my sex ed. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, it's really interesting asking this question to folks because so many people have been like, "Oh yeah, it was a VHS tape in seventh grade <laughs> that was like super outdated and really terrible and did not represent me or my body or other people in the room actually." And it was just like because of teachers and schools' inability to teach young people, this is the result where like millions of us are just completely like ill-equipped to handle these changes as children exactly exactly uh and yeah it was it was horrible and actually to the point where if i can share like a a story that's actually very heartbreaking um when i was a freshman in high school I had a dear friend who um, ended up in the hospital and ended up in a coma because of toxic shock syndrome. Oh, wow. She's the first and only person that I know who did develop toxic shock syndrome. And at the time, I remember like classmates making jokes about it and all these things because it was the thing that you had heard about and like seen on the tampon box. But no one ever thought it was a real thing, right? right? So to know someone... It was like, oh, because we don't have proper sex ed and, you know, the mechanics of what happened and how the tampon ended up staying in for so long had to do with sexual intercourse. Mm-hmm. And like, so just like that compounding of everything of like, we're not educated well enough to know about like, you know, what happens to a tampon if it stays in too long or how do you get it out if something, you know, because... 
it can't disappear, right? Because also anatomy, right? So there's like the conflation of so many things. We weren't learning proper anatomy. <laughs> we weren't learning these things about, you know, intercourse and what happens and how to treat your body. Uh, and so, yeah, it was like, I think it became a little bit of a wake up for some people, but some people still saw it as a joke because we weren't getting the proper education. Totally. And that is, yeah, that's really traumatic, obviously, for that friend and for everyone around them to be able to, like, comprehend what even that means and let alone all of the, you know, chemicals that are put into tampons, how we're not really taught how to collect our menstrual blood in a way that works for each individual person. Like, there's so much education and information missing there. Um, and yeah, what, what, a an interesting and, and sad, like way to learn those things. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's get into your background a little bit. You said, you said briefly that you grew up in a, in a, in a religious household. Um, but I'm curious about how you became passionate about kind of the intersections of sexuality, spirituality, and religion. Yes. Uh, so oftentimes I tell people I was born into it. I feel like my my passion and my purpose and my calling were were ordained. <laughs> and I kinda I showed up and I was like, okay, I guess this is what we're doing. Uh, so to expound on that, um, I was born to an HIV positive mother in the eighties. <clears throat> who who, uh, then passed away from age-related illness uh, when I was fairly young, uh, just before I turned five. And uh, it would be be years, actually, though, before I knew that she had been HIV positive and that she had died of age-related illness. And it was because of the shame and the stigma, right, Um, surrounding living with HIV, being in a relationship with somebody who lived with HIV, And how that then played out in my family and also the role that religion played in that. Uh, and so I grew up Pentecostal Christian. Uh, for folks who are not may not be familiar with that branch and denomination of Christianity, it is one of the more fundamentalist, more evangelical denominations. Uh, and so in that uh, denomination, you see some of the beliefs that support a lot of the horrible policies that are current, that, that are a part of our our country, right? So things such as homosexuality being a sin, uh, things such as abortion being a sin, things such as you know sexual immorality, right? And so the idea that somebody living with HIV, living with AIDS, somehow brought that on themselves, mm-hmm. right? Because they had committed sinful behavior is a part of that theology and rhetoric. And we see it all the time in anti-abortion bills. We see it all the time in people who want to strip queer folks like myself of our rights, right? Who want to strip trans folks of their rights. They're using, even though they don't want to admit to it, they're using these theological beliefs as the basis uh, for a lot of these laws. And so those, that's the type of church that I grew up in. Uh, and so when you take that, right, of me growing up in this church, and then you take that I'm born to an HIV-positive mother, uh, when I started to come into consciousness, I was like, hmm, on the one hand, your sermons are talking about God being love and, you know, Jesus sacrificing his life for all of us because he loved us so much. And then on the other hand, I hear you saying that homosexuals are going to hell and that 
people living with HIV and AIDS brought it on themselves, that it's, you know, part of, because it's a part of their sinful lifestyle. And these things are not, one of these things is not like the other. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? They don't match. Um, And probably, I would say probably, well, around 10 is when I finally got up the courage to ask my father how my mom died. Um, and I actually wrote an article about this on World AIDS Day uh, a couple years ago um, called My Mother Died from AIDS and my tribute to her is that I'm not ashamed. Mm. Um, and so in that article, I talk about like how I mustered up the courage. And the person I asked first actually was my grandmother. She was my best friend. This was my mom's mom. And so, you know, we had a special bond. And she told me, she was like, I think you need to ask your dad. That's a conversation you need to have with him. But if he doesn't want to tell you, come back to me and then I'll tell you. And I was like, okay, cool. I can live with that. So um, my dad and I, though, our relationship, (laughs) you know, was a little less secure. And so it took me, I had to like really muster up some courage and finally asked him. And he actually did tell me the truth. Um, and you know, in him telling me, I could feel his shame. Mm. Like I could feel his embarrassment around that. That is what his, that is how his wife died. Uh, and you know, of course there's like different stories in my family about how my mom contracted HIV and you know, as is an article and I mean it, like I really don't give a damn of how my mom <laughs> contracted HIV because that's not the point, right? right. Like feeds into the stigma, this idea that how you contracted the virus. Right. Certain okay. ways of contracting it are better than other better ways. Than others, right? And it's just like, no. That no. Incorrect. It's incorrect. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, learn that at ten had to navigate my own shame, right, around, because I felt my family's shame, navigating all these things I'm hearing from my, my, my religion. And then I started to realize that I may not be so straight. <laughs> and the refrain that my pastor used to say in her sermons started to really wear on me. Um, she had this refrain that she would say, thank God, I don't think she says it anymore. Um, <clears throat> when I was younger, you know, when you're a kid, everything just feels very loud and like, yes. <laughs> dramatic. And so I swore she would say it like every Sunday. Um, but it was basically the same refrain of that we must end homosexuality and bestiality and pedophilia. And they always went together. And that is what she equated homosexuality to. Mm. Oh, wow. This is, what a message, right? Especially for a kid, yeah. Especially for a kid. Uh, And so, you know, a few years later, uh, around 14, 15, was when I really realized, I was like, okay, yeah, I have an attraction to my friends. (laughs) (laughs) This is happening. (laughs) Um, but I was just so bogged down by that horrible theology um, that I would come home from school every day and I would turn on this evangelical preacher on the television. Her name is Joyce Meyer. And I would watch her and I would just like pray for an hour for God to like not make me gay. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't know what I did. I don't, I, I would say like, I don't know what I did. I don't know why you're mad at me, but like, Please take it away. I promise if you take it away, like, I'll be better. I'll be good. Like, all these things, right? Which 
I now know, and to everyone listening, like, that's not a thing. <laughs> God mm-hmm. is not shoot. God doesn't hate you. Uh, yeah, it's it's other people's distorted theology and distorted ways of interpreting God that puts people in those positions that, you know, cre- I was depressed for years, right? Suicide ideation, like everything, because I, in, I internalized these beliefs. <clears throat> so it's very personal for me how, like, this became my work and my passion. And though it wasn't until I was working in after college that I decided to really pursue it, right? It was like a thing that I was unlearning for myself. Um, but it wasn't until I was working at an HIV AIDS nonprofit that catered to women and girls of color. I was the youth program manager and I would see young women and young girls um, and they started to tell me their stories. And their stories were very similar to mine. <clears throat> and some of them were queer and questioning and exploring, and you know, which was like wonderful. And I was holding space for them. And then they would tell me things like, you know, oh, but I don't wanna use protection because if I use protection, then that's gonna make it real and I'm not gay. Right, okay. Right. And this is, again, because of messages that they had heard from their mm-hmm. churches, uh, right, or hearing or um, meeting with uh, young women who had been sexually assaulted and <clears throat> them telling me that they thought they were going to hell because they weren't a virgin anymore. Mm. A story that I also know very well as a survivor um, myself. And so I'm like, wow, OK, clearly this is not just a thing that I have experienced yes. or a small number of us have experienced. A lot of us are experiencing this, right? And experiencing tremendous harm because of our religious spaces. And again, this is not just about Christianity. This is across the board for most patriarchal religions, frankly. And so, yeah, I heard like a call at that time. I was actually on my way to get my master's in public health and then pivoted and ended up in seminary, (laughs) getting my master's of divinity uh, and focusing my studies in sexuality and religion. Um, yeah. And, you know, here we are. (laughs) Oh, I love that so much. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, I specifically want to speak to this idea or kind of this like revelation that you shared about like, okay, like this is clearly not just super individualistic, these experiences, like this is a pattern. And this is like embedded in our society and in our messaging to young and young people and old people like this is just pervasive um, across the board. And so I I really um, want to, like, emphasize the fact that, like, each of us as, like, people who have experienced trauma and people who are friends of people who have experienced trauma think that it's in this little bubble, but the reality is it is everywhere. And yeah. so the more we're able to not only normalize that, but teach folks behaviors to combat, uh, to not assault people, right? Um, is is the way I feel like that we try to uh, fix this. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know how else to say it, right? It's kind of like, it's really hard to, to explain just or to, to think of the idea that sexual assault and things of that nature would just be eradicated. It will take many, many years and a lot of work. Um, but I do think that that first step of that is like normalizing our experiences. Yes, most definitely. And I would, I would like add to that, 
not only normalizing the experiences that we're that we're having, but then denormalizing the fact that it's happening. Yes, exactly. So it's like yes, okay, normalize that this is happening to most of us. Mm-hmm. However, we also need to, like, call out that this should not be happening. Yes. Like, it is unacceptable still. <laughs> right? This is unacceptable. This is not what religion is supposed to be or do. Um, right? And, and this idea that if your belief system allows for the degradation of an entire demographic, Something you might there. consider that belief system. I mean, I'm just saying, right? Like this idea that this thing that's supposed to bring you peace or enlightenment um, or joy or salvation. And, but in order to do that, you need to like degradate whole classes of people. Mm -hmm. Something about that. It's not adding up. It's not adding up there. (laughs) Um, okay, so you're a chaplain. So I want to know, I want to know what you do as a chaplain and how the work that you do is similar and or different than other chaplains, maybe in this space, maybe not in this space. I'm to give a little background. I'm Jewish. I'm like, I would describe myself as like reform Jewish. My dad um, is like conservative, like he keeps kosher, goes to synagogue. Um, and things of that nature. So I'm not as familiar with like the work of chaplain. So with that context, would love to hear a little bit more from you. Sure. So for me, so I, I identify myself as a movement chaplain, movement uh, chaplain, right? And so the reason for that is because most of my chaplain work has very intentionally been within and for social justice movements, uh, particularly my home movement, which is reproductive justice. Uh, and also, though, I have done work with LGBTQ movement, right, and folks, um, and then also within the Black liberation movement, <clears throat> And so for me, I think I'll start with the difference of what I do that I think is different and similar is that I was very adamant when I was in seminary that I did not want to pastor a church, right? Like physical building pastor. Um, and I love pastors and I have amazing friends who are pastors and, you know, it's, it's very hard work. And I knew that part of my ministry was outside of the walls of the church. And so, right. It was, it was why I had ended up in seminary in the first place. I was working at a nonprofit when I decided to go to seminary. Mm-hmm. I had never worked in a church, even though I grew up in church. Um, <clears throat> unless you want to count the times that I taught vacation Bible school. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so when I when I saw that and I recognized that that was my purpose, right, and that was my contribution to movement was to bridge this gap. Uh, one of the first things I did was uh, in 2014, during the very first Movement for Black Lives convening, I did a workshop uh, called Healing Black Church Trauma in the Quest for Black Liberation. Mm. Because one of the things I had recognized was a lot of us in Black Liberation work had church wounds and church harm, and that a lot of us in social justice, justice work across the board had church wounds and church harm. Mm -hmm. However, you know, the movements that get lifted up in our history, right, civil rights movement, labor movement, these things, 
were rooted in a lot of um, spiritual and religious ideas and ideals. We all know now, right, that the spirituality of our movements today is different from from those in the 60s, the 50s, 60s, and before. Um, <clears throat> however, there's still an inherent spirituality in our movements, and that can't be denied. And I was I saw that over and over again. I see it now. Um, you know, to, today I'm a part of a collective here. I live on Muscogee Creek territory, also known as Atlanta. Uh, and so I'm part of a collective here in Atlanta called Atlanta Protest Chaplains. And we are a collective of chaplains who go and are witnesses, bear spiritual witness at protests, mm. um, right? Who, who hold space for folks at protests, whether that be emotional support, whether folks need to take a moment to like pray or, or reground, need to meditate, um, right. Those are the types of things that we do at protests <clears throat> as protest chaplains. And in addition to that, I also have done spiritual support and grounding for activists, uh, spiritual support and grounding for folks who are navigating trauma, particularly religious trauma. Uh, and that, that means I've done work in an abortion clinic. That means I've done work right at LGBTQ conferences. And there are there are starting to be more and more and more of us. Um, so for example, the Faith Matters Network um, has a movement chaplaincy training now. That's oh, wow, cool. Led by Reverend Mickey Scott Bay Jones and Hillary Allen. And it's amazing, right? And it's like more and more people are recognizing the need for this. Uh, you know, I'm a firm believer that every single social justice movement and organization should have at least one in-house chaplain <laughs> to be there to help people to ground. And you, you don't have to call them a chaplain. They could be a healer, right? An in-house healer, in-house Reiki person. I just feel like we, you need that person uh, who can hold space in that way. And so really a chaplain is just a space holder. It's someone who is going to be non-judgmental. It's someone who can support your spiritual journey and your spiritual fortification, regardless of your religious background. Mm, like that chaplain. is yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you. What were you going to say? <laughs> Uh, chaplains are by nature inter and multi-religious. Like it's a part of our training. Yeah. Can you say, can you say a little bit more about that? Like what, what does that mean to you? Yeah. So for me, I remember when I was trained in, when I was in seminary, um, as a chaplain intern, I worked in a hospital and one of the things that we learned is that part of our job was to meet the patient and the family where they are, not where we are. Right. So I have provided a ministry of presence to Muslim patients, to Jewish patients, to atheist patients, to Hindu patients. Right. Even though my spiritual background is Christian and uh, now um, I practice an African spirituality. Uh, but it, that doesn't matter because the focus is on the person in need. Right. And so I have I have prayed to Allah. I have prayed to Jehovah. I have prayed to whoever it is that that person wants us to pray to because it's about what it is that they need for their spiritual fortification. It's not about me. Mm, that is very, very powerful. Yeah, I'm I'm just so glad that you're on this podcast today um, because, first of all, I'm learning a lot. But second of all, like, 
I feel like when it comes to religion, our society kind of positions religion as being opposed to or in direct conflict with things like you explained, like LGBTQ plus rights or reproductive freedom. And you really talk about kind of building bridges between those causes and issues that have been pitted against each other. So I'm curious, like from having experienced that oppression in the church when you were young and really recognizing the fact that there are many other people who are experiencing this oppression, how do you uh, build these bridges as a chaplain and as a, a movement chaplain in particular? Yeah. Um, I think the first thing is really helping people to come into the belief and the knowledge that no one owns religion or spirituality. And that regardless of the trauma they may have experienced and regardless of the people who enacted that trauma, who tried to convince them that there was one right way to be spiritual or religious, that it's bullshit. Right. And so you have as much right and autonomy and agency to claim your God or your version of God as anyone else. Mm. And probably more so than people who are trying to use God to oppress you. Mm. That is a really, really awesome framework to think through the fact that God and spirituality and religion can and should be whatever you want it to be. Whatever you want. I tell people all the time, I'm like, it's wild to me to think that sometimes, and I, I'm, I'm talking so much about Christians because it's what I know the most of, and again, but again, I know this happens across the board, but it's wild for me to think like, here you are talking about God, the mysterious, God, the omnipotent, God who you can't see, touch, right? Like this, this amorphous thing that you believe in, and yet you also at the same time think that God is so small that there would only be one path to get to God? That, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> like, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. I'm mm -hmm. like, you want to make God so small. Mm. Why? You can't contain it. You can't control them. Right? Like, According to you, God is not a man. God is not a person. Like, God is God, right? It's vast. God created the universe in some of, the, in some of your beliefs. And yet, so therefore, you really think God would be like, oh, but there's only one way to get to me. Mm. Figure it out. <laughs> Just, right? Right. It seems so petty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So I mean, it's really it's, like opening it up, you know, in a sense, kind of cracking it open. Crack it open. It's the divine mystery for a reason. Crack it open. <laughs> I love it. That's really like freeing. I think like, I don't know how our listeners kind of identify because this is actually kind of like our first like religion and spirituality focused episode. Okay. And, and so I think for myself, like I'm someone who is kind of seeking like spirituality or to be like more connected but I've felt very like what you just said really has enabled me in this moment to feel like oh wow I do kind of feel like empowered to really make this whatever kind of experience I want without needing to adhere to these 
rules or to these ideals that other folks who practice spirituality practice. Like it really should be an individualistic, of course. And then there's, you know, the idea of community and coming together. But in terms of the way that folks practice their own spirituality and religion, like there really shouldn't be bounds. There shouldn't, uh, truly. Right. And it's like, you can be a part of a religion where you have a collective mm-hmm. and that collective decides, okay, these are the things that we are going to practice together, right? However, in terms of your relationship with your spiritual entity, that is a deeply personal relationship, right? Even Jesus had a personal relationship with God, right? What Jesus had to do is very different from what I have to do in my lifetime. We're, we are different and individuals. And so what may not wait, may not work for you or the things that you feel like, you know what, I can't do this because spiritually this is how it makes me feel. Okay, great. That may not apply to me though. I may feel great about it. I may be like, actually, I feel great about walking naked under the full moon. It's perfect for me. <laughs> Let me live my life. Let me live my life. If you don't want to walk naked under the full moon, okay, fine. Not your jam, right? But my God and I are like, actually, works great. Um, you know, one of my one of my very firm beliefs is panentheism. And it I was introduced to it by one of my favorite eco-feminists, Yvonne Gabara. And it's the belief that the divine pervades and interpenetrates every part of the universe Mm. and that it also extends beyond time and space. So to bring it like a little closer to home, it's like if you were sitting by a tree, it's the idea that the divine is, is the tree and also is in the tree and is also above and below the tree. Mm. Right. And it's like all that happening at once. And so it's like for us to try to make God as small as something that is so concerned with who and how I love. Mm. You know. Yeah. It's like you're not buying it based on that framework. Not buying it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I love that. I love that. And so getting a little bit more specific, I wonder if you can talk about experiences of you and those who you've worked with, of course, with their consent of they've, you know, allowed you to chat about this, but how has religion and spirituality been like directly, not only like, you know, against anti-LGBTQ, but actively helpful when it comes to sex positivity and self-love? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think the biggest examples of that for me have been my work within reproductive justice. Uh, and so, you know, as we talked about, I worked at an abortion clinic, um, for a period of time and it cracked open my beliefs in a way that I couldn't, I could, I can't go back to, right. I can't go back to the time before that. Uh, I have accompanied people who had wanted pregnancies that they also chose to terminate because it was the most humane thing that they could think to do for their child. Right. And so when, I mean, there's, there's still a lot of debate 
But when it was um, the height of the debate around late-term abortions and trying to regulate, right, cutoffs for abortions, the people most impacted by those laws are people who want their pregnancies. Totally. Totally. Are people who are, you know, planned their pregnancies and are looking forward and all the things. And then they have the heart-wrenching reality that your child may not survive Mm. or this pregnancy is putting your life in danger, right? Um, and having to make very difficult choices, very difficult, impossible choices even, um, <clears throat> and doing it from a place of deeply rooted spiritual morality, right? Because for them, I love my child and my spiritual morality is such that I don't want them to suffer. Right. So if doing this procedure means they suffer less or don't suffer at all, then that's what I'm going to do, right? And your religious dogma and whatever you have going on, keep that shit away from me. It's none of of your business. You're not in this with me, Mm -hmm. right? And I think to, to your question of like how religion, spirituality and religion has been helpful, it's for those of us who are willing, we can go be in it with them, right? Uh, one of the tenets of chaplaincy is compassion. That part of what you're doing is having compassion. And the literal meaning of compassion is to suffer with. And so, yeah, I would be in those hospital rooms with people performing uh, memorial services after their termination procedures because and being in it with them Mm. these religious right-wing people who are trying to regulate people's uteruses they're not in it with them right like and so getting to hold religion and spirituality in this way where it's like no i'm sorry it's not it's not just a weapon actually it shouldn't be a weapon at all it's a tool of support, right? It's a part. It's a part of an apothecary of resources, so that we can be in this with you. So you're not alone. So you can transform this this very horrible thing that you're going through, right, into something just a little more beautiful. Uh, the amount of patients who would say, like, being able to have a memorial service being able to have a naming ceremony. Um, that was something that I used to do with, with parents is to help them name their child, hold a naming ceremony. Um, and yeah, that made all the difference for them a lot of times. And really, honestly, even for people who wanted to terminate, right? Because I saw those people too. Um, I had a mother come to me once who, she was already, she was already a mother and um, had had children, and she knew she could not provide. Had she kept that pregnancy, she knew she would not be able to provide for all of her kids. And so, again, when we talk about morality and spiritual morality, she, she was doing it, right? <laughs> like, she was upholding that because she, she wanted to be there for the children she already had. That's it's literally a reproductive justice tenet. She wanted to be able to care fully for the children she already had. And so she 
sought termination for that pregnancy. And when I went to meet her, her very first question to me was, is God going to hate me now? And being able to sit with her and tell her no, (laughs) and to pray with her and talk with her and just hold space with her, right? And to take, and to take, that religious what viewpoint that made her ask that question and turn it on its head, even if it was in that moment, right, makes all the difference. And that to show people that no, religion doesn't have to be this thing that you fear or that you um, view as like a big bad wolf that's coming for you. Uh, it can be, it can still be beautiful. It can still be uplifting and supportive it can still help to nourish and ground you um, and support you. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's super special um, and super powerful. And this has been an incredible interview. We have one more question, um, which I'm super curious about and really excited to hear the answer, which is like, what's next for you? Like, what are you, what are you working on right now? Like, how do you hope to see your advocacy really grow in the coming years? Oh, yeah, this is a great question. Uh, so I am actually working on a book right now. Uh, um, as you know, one of the spiritual resources that I use for myself and in my work is affirmations. Uh, and I've been using those for a long time and have, and use them in my work with folks, particularly who are healing from religious trauma or who are looking for ways to, um, ground themselves, right? Especially if organized religion is too much to go back to or delve into, um, affirmations I find is a good entry point for a lot of people who are, um, healing their, their relationship with spirituality and religion. And so I've loved using them. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm working on a book, um, around affirmations, which I'm very excited about. Can't wait to buy it. Can't wait to read it. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, and what else am I doing? Uh, I'm continuing to work with people in, in small batches um, and uh, trying to pace myself, if I'm very honest. You know, we're still in a pandemic. Yes, we are. <laughs> um, I'm trying not to take on so many things. Uh, I do have full-time work that I love, uh, that I do uh, where I uh, am in support of those who work on the front lines of the movement to end violence against women and girls. Uh, and so really, really enjoy doing that work. Uh, and I'm still a movement chaplain. Like I said before, I, you know, part of Atlanta protest chaplains. Um, and how that's manifesting right now is that I am available for workshops. So uh, I do workshops around spirituality and, and social justice uh, for folks who are curious about, like, what is this thing? What are you doing? <laughs> uh, and also do public speaking uh, around sexuality and religion and um, healing justice uh, and, and healing from trauma. Uh, I am hoping, big hope. <laughs> to do a virtual workshop actually for the month of May uh, for women identified folks who have religious trauma around masturbating. Mm, So important. So May is masturbation month. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's, it's a thing. I know a lot of women folk who 
have a lot of shame um, around masturbation or who just don't do it because of the religious messages they have received. Uh, And so, yeah, that'll be coming up in May. Incredible. Well, do you want to share real quick also um, your like Insta handle, your website so folks can find you? Most definitely. So you can find me on Instagram. It is the only social media I'm on anymore. I got off Facebook and Twitter. I just couldn't do it anymore. So uh, Instagram at purposefully LJ and at purposeful affirmations. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Reverend. Pleasure for being on. This has been so inspiring and enlightening and such a pleasure to talk to you. So thank you so much. Thank you. I really, really appreciated it, Danielle. Sex Ed with DB is an amazing podcast. Oh, thank you so much. Yay. And also, you are the last uh, interview and episode of the season, season five. So big deal. That is a big deal. Thank you. I didn't know that. (laughs) How many different ways do you think I can say the word lube in 30 seconds? Let's give it a shot. Lube, lube, luby, 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 lube, lerb, L to the U to the B to the E, lube. Well, that was lubes. I mean, loads of fun. This phenomenal and very necessary lube break was brought to you by Uber Lube. Use promo code SEXEDDB for 10% off your purchase with free shipping at www.uberlube.com. Sex Ed with DB is supported by Clona Willy. Clona Willy has been all about dick since 96, and all kits are hand-assembled in Portland, Oregon. All materials are 100% body safe, extremely high quality, and easy to use and clean. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase of any Clona Willy or Clona Pussy kit at www.clonawilly.com. Follow them on IG at Clona Willy Kit. Meet Pandia Health. By people with uteruses, for people with uteruses, and led by a doctor, Pandia Health makes your life easier by bringing birth control by mail. Pandia Health offers free and confidential delivery of the pill, so you don't have to go out of your way to get the health care you need. Skip the trip to the pharmacy. Go to PandiaHealth.com. That's P-A-N-D-I-A Health.com. And use code SEXEDFREE to get a free telemedicine appointment for the first 50 people who sign up. Offer only valid in Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, and Wyoming. Our creator, co-producer, sound engineer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalow, a.k.a. DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our main logo and banner graphic were created by Andrea Forgotch. Our social media intern is Leslie Lopez. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gant. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast. Tune in next time. <laughs>